Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation and the strange events in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts. You know, rolling to the call, I didn't know what the circumstances were. You're, you're trained as a cop to kind of envision what you're going to deal with when you get there. This is Phil Reeves. He's a retired deputy who serves as a chaplain for Lost Hill Sheriff Station. So I figured on the way over there, this is probably like a, a domestic violence thing or something that happened in a big house, you know, in one of these mansions or whatever. And it turned out to be in the park and that the folks there are not from here so. They had no place, you know, they, they weren't local. We're at his house in a nice suburban neighborhood not far from the station. We're talking about that day, June 22, 2018, when he responded to a shooting at Malibu Creek State Park. One of our deputy, female deputy was close by and was there. Now, I don't know whether there was a ranger there prior or, yeah. or not. Yeah, yeah. But it was still dark. Uh, and, and crazy in there. When Pastor Phil got to the station, he found Tristan Baudet's family totally distraught. You know, you can imagine what state of mind that they were in. Um, he started talking to Scott McCurdy, Tristan's brother-in-law, who'd been sleeping in the next tent over. He was actually the one who discovered Tristan's body. Erica Wu, Tristan's wife, had been at home in Orange County, getting ready to take a medical board exam when she got the news that her husband had been killed. Now, she was inside the station. Erica was still being uh, interviewed by the the homicide guys. Eventually, Erica came out. She was focused on one thing only. Erica was adamant about it, that she wanted to see the body. She wanted to see uh, Tristan's body. 
And I knew it was probably going to be like hours and hours and hours. Pastor Phil brought everyone back here to his house to wait. Erica, you know, she went up and just kind of curled up in the fetal position on the, the bed upstairs. On some level, he says, she didn't believe that Tristan had died. She needed to make it real. Five or six o'clock, I forget when it was, we got a call. I got a call from the homicide guy. Say, hey, uh, the corner's done. You got to get over here right away. Everyone piled into his car. And the press was there. They were all gathered around the gate. And then I got a call saying, the coroner doesn't want them to see the body. Now, I got that call just as the a coroner's van was coming out of the park. And Erica said, is that him? Is he in there? They jumped out of the car and they ran over and they to intercept the van as it was leaving. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And it was getting to be a cluster. I mean, you know, and they were really upset, obviously, you know, wailing and sobbing. And, and they stopped the van and the coroner's assistant was this young lady. Um, and she had already, she was already affected by this whole thing. She was just in tears <laughs> driving the coroner's van, <laughs> you know, and the family's saying, open the van, you gotta open the van and let us look at him. And she said, I can't do that. You know, I, I was, you know, the coroner said, I can't, I've gotta go. I was able to kind of say, hey, look, we, we can't, we can't see him now. Um, let's get back in the car. And the coroner and the homicide guys came out and they did something unusual, which they said, come on, let's go in the park um, so that the family could ask the coroner and the homicide people, you know, what was questions about what they knew at that point. So there, I felt there was at least some closure there for them. I sense that maybe they have a different opinion. When I started investigating this murder, everything about it seemed completely random. But then I found out about Anthony Rauda and his long history with law enforcement, with the Lost Hills cops, and the violence he says they did to him, which might have set him on his path. You know, these things, these things are, these affect lifetimes, these are generational. Pastor Phil is a pastor, so he's been going to the Bible, to the first murder, to try to understand how violence reverberates, like what seems to have happened to Rauda, like what happened to Tristan Baudet. I just read about Cain and Abel, and um, after Cain slew Abel, uh, God says, I can hear your brother's blood from the ground. But the Hebrew for blood is plural, bloods. I can hear your brother's bloods from the ground. I thought, why is that? Why, why plural? And the uh, implication is that when you take somebody's life, you affect all their potentiality, all the things that they could be. Uh, you know, you affect the children that they might have had, the grandchildren that they might have had. I mean, it's just, um, you just can't even begin to measure. He's saying that Tristan Baudet's murder will affect his children and his children's children, and their children too. I know that Erica, in her own way, has arrived at this same idea. When I call her to check in and ask about the girls, she says, 
They're amazing, happy, resilient little people, but they're not the people they would have been. Then she adds, I guess neither am I anymore. Cain and Abel are the first two sons of Adam and Eve. In the Cain and Abel story, Cain is jealous of Abel and murders him. So God exiles Cain, sending him east to the land of Nod, a place of wandering, a place for fugitives. How could I not think about Rauda, his restless wandering, and also his camp in the desolate hills at the edge of Malibu? And how this story, which is about violence and its echoes, is also about knowledge. How just a little bit of knowledge could have changed everything. I'm Dana Goodyear, and this is Lost Hills. Episode 8, East of Eden. Several months before Tristan Baudet was killed, a couple of hikers found Rauda's camp. My name is Hunter Smith. My name's Kara Hartley. They'd followed a deer trail up into the hills north of the hairpin turn on Mulholland Highway when they realized they'd stumbled into someone's home. It didn't look very habitable or like it had been habitable for a while. It seemed abandoned, with trash spilling down the steep slopes. They looked around for stuff to scavenge. They liked bringing souvenirs home from their hikes. I found this hot pink machete, and it did have a carving on the side, like somebody had scratched into the blade, and it said Q's machete on it, C-U apostrophe S. It became a part of, you know, just my camping box that we would take camping, and we used to make funny stories up about this mythological character that owned this machete. They were there for 10 minutes at the most. I did start feeling a little creeped out, like, hey, this definitely was, like, where somebody was living or whatever, and we both kind of felt the same way at the same time and felt an urgency to leave. Before they left, Kara grabbed one more souvenir. The other thing that caught our eye was this, like, a small box of what were unfired 12-gauge shotgun shells. The box was caked in mud, with only a few shells left. We just stuffed that in our backpack, too. Months passed. The Tesla got shot. Tristan Baudet was killed. And Malibu went crazy trying to figure out who had done it. Kara and Hunter broke up, and they forgot all about the hike to the abandoned camp. 
In fact, I don't think we really thought about it until I drove by one day uh, on Mulholland and saw a bunch of cop cars on that turn. When he saw that, Hunter immediately called Kara. And he was like, Kara, do you think that possibly that camp that we found back in January or February, like, could be the same guy? They couldn't find the box of shotgun shells, but they decided to turn Q's machete in at Lost Hill Station. They brought it in, in a paper Trader Joe's bag, and the detectives flipped out. I mean, it was intimidating because we were just immediately kind of surrounded by a bunch of cops wanting to get like us repeat this the facts over and over they even wanted us to hike them to the camp immediately even though it was like dark outside and they even asked us if we were homeless and living in our car in the canyon and maybe I just shouldn't warn my Birkenstocks in that day or something but the deputies were intent on finding the shotgun shells They asked over and over what type of shells they were, how big, what color. Were they solid slugs, birdshot, what? They probably called me like every other day for that whole two weeks. And I just kind of was at a loss of what to do. So I did a really good clean out of my truck and I'd found one of the 12 gauge shotgun shells rolling around in my car. You know, so I had immediately went down to the station at that point, and I had it in a little pouch and came in like, hey, I just so you know, I did find one of those shells in my car. Like, Kara's evidence turned out to be so important that the prosecutor asked her to testify before the grand jury. Still, she's not entirely comfortable with the cop's narrative or her role in it. I mean, that's kind of like been the problem the whole time is just like there just has been such a lack of transparency and information being released to the public or alerting to the public about any of these things happening like in this case had Kara and Hunter known that there were unsolved shootings when they came across an abandoned camp and found a box of shotgun shells it's easy to imagine that they would have turned those in you know, and I think that's where pe- the community's, like, distrust in that system is spawning, too. Because it wasn't, like, widely known information that there was a so-called sniper in the hills. And had Hunter and I known that, we might have been more apt to alert the authorities about the camp back in February. And if they turned in the shotgun shells back then, it's easy to imagine that the sheriff's department might have searched the camp and found something. Or maybe they would have put up some cameras. And then, when Rowder returned with a carbine, they could have arrested him. All before Tristan Baudet even planned his camping trip to Malibu Creek State Park. Had they known, they think, they could have saved Baudet's life. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. 
That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash loss today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash lost. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
For a long time, I couldn't figure out what happened at Lost Hills Station. No one would tell me what Sergeant Wright and Lieutenant Royal had done wrong in the Rowda investigation, why they'd been disciplined. I still haven't seen the confidential internal affairs reports into their police work on the Rowda case. There's only one person I can think of who definitely knows what happened and can talk about it. In fact, she has to. It's the prosecutor seeking to convict Rauda. She's obligated to tell the grand jury anything that could potentially be exculpatory, a help to the defense. So she had to tell the grand jury about the two dirty cops, the homicide detective Daniel Morris and the major crimes detective Ty Berry. She didn't call them to testify, citing their histories of misconduct. She also talked to the grand jury at length about Sergeant Wright and Lieutenant Royal. The reason the sheriff's department disciplined them, she said, is that they conducted unauthorized investigations and reenactments. When Sergeant Wright used a dowel to estimate the trajectory of the bullet that hit Ian Kincaid's Tesla, and that time he went to the campground and pointed a laser at Baudet's campsite to figure out where the other bullet had gone, so what if he found a 9mm bullet? It wasn't his job, she said, and he didn't do it right. And Royal? She sums up his work as a, quote, personal investigation into the charged crimes. Ouch. It seems like Captain Becerra was right. Tweedledee and Tweedledum gave the defense a defense. But what if going rogue isn't the real reason Sergeant Wright and Lieutenant Royal were disciplined? A few weeks ago, I had a conversation that changed my view of the whole story. My name is Jeremy Lipman. I am a reserve sheriff's deputy and a member of the Malibu Search and Rescue Team. Lipman is part of Sergeant Wright's old team. He's been disturbed to see what his old boss has been going through, and he wants to set the record straight. He says what happened to Sergeant Wright and Lieutenant Royal is about jealousy, ego, and wounded pride. It has nothing to do with right and wrong or facts. It just has to do with politics. And my perception, and I've said this before, is no good deed goes unpunished. So He says the detectives from homicide and major crimes, elite free-ranging units that tackle the most serious crimes, were upstaged by the local Lost Hills detectives and the volunteers from Sergeant Wright's search and rescue team. It started with the 9mm shell casings at the murder scene. After Baudette was killed, Homicide searched the campground and didn't come up with anything. Homicide having not located any shell casings in their search, Malibu Search and Rescue was tasked, and the team was tasked, to go and conduct a secondary search, which we did. Sergeant Wright, he says, told the team to look in the grass to the east of Baudette's tent. He had a hunch that that's where the shooter had fired from. Very quickly, search and rescue found five 9mm shell casings. Sergeant Wright called Homicide. Do you remember what Homicide's reaction was when they arrived? I think they were a little surprised that we found it, uh, the shell casings. It was awkward. But the next thing that happened was worse. It involved the Major Crimes Bureau. In the fall of 2018, they took over the investigation into the armed burglaries. 
The lead investigator was Ty Berry, Mr. Shitkickers himself. The attitude towards Lost Hill Station was very, very negative and, in fact, derogatory. That deputies were leaking information, that deputies didn't know what they were doing. Um, And what I mean by that was, this is all your guys' fault, and now we have to clean up your mess. Littman says it all came to a head on the day of Rauta's capture. Sergeant Wright had followed that trail of boot prints from the site of the last break-in into the hills behind the sheriff's station. He argued with Ty Berry, now one of the official leads on the case, to go back and search the hills again. And that's what precipitated what became a pretty heated conversation between Sergeant Wright and Ty Berry, as well as Lieutenant Royal and another major crimes detective who I don't know. So Barry didn't want to go look there? He didn't want to go look there. He had to be convinced. Royal was trying to make the argument. Uh, Sergeant Wright was trying to make the argument. They did have a pretty heated exchange about whether there was any reason to go back there. And ultimately, Ty Barry capitulated and said, fine, let's just go. It turned out that Sergeant Wright and Lieutenant Royal were right. The team arrested Rauta with a carbine and 9mm ammunition exactly where Sergeant Wright thought he would be. And the Lost Hills captain bought everyone dinner to celebrate. My impression of Ty Berry and the other detectives from Major Crimes who were eating dinner with us downstairs was they weren't very happy about things that had gone down that day. I think it was unsaid that they were embarrassed that Lieutenant Royal and Sergeant Wright had been correct about the area of where the suspect might be found and that the suspect was found. Sergeant Wright's position was, we're just going to keep our head down, we're going to do everything that we're supposed to do, and we're going to do it by the book, and we're not going to play any games, and just whatever happens, happens. After the capture, he says, the tensions between Sergeant Wright and Detective Barry intensified. And suddenly, Sergeant Wright's work on the Rauta case was falling under suspicion. This is where I believe, and I don't know how quickly, that they attempted to create a narrative that he was acting rogue, which in my opinion would be a falsehood. I asked Littman what he thought when Sergeant Wright and Lieutenant Royal were transferred out of Lost Hill Station and ultimately disciplined for their work on the case. This is payback. To me, it was it was just, just sheerly punitive. To punish them for succeeding? Yes. And by extension, I'll make the extension, in my personal opinion, by making major crimes look bad. This is more than just office politics. And it's more than straightforward retaliation. There's another layer to it it could serve a larger purpose for the sheriff's department. Sergeant Wright tells me to meet him at an old stucco house with a drained swimming pool across from some box stores in the valley. It's his lawyer's office. Um, do you want to get, are you guys ready to get going? The real reason the department punished him and Lieutenant Royal, he says, is that they saw a pattern in the shootings 
and they tried to do something about it. They begged their bosses to warn the public before Tristan Baudet was killed, and the department said no. It was my opinion and Lieutenant Royal's opinion that there was a clear pattern and a clear MO to indicate that we had a serial shooter and that the public should be warned. There was no reason not to warn the public. Uh, we could still investigate the crime, uh, but by warning the public, um, people could choose to stay away. Sergeant Wright says he and Lieutenant Royal first asked the then-captain of Lost Hill Station to issue a public warning, but he turned them down. So Lieutenant Royal took his concerns downtown. That was in the summer of 2017, after the fifth near miss, the teenagers in the BMW. He met with his division chief and his commander. That's as high up in the command structure as you can go without meeting the actual sheriff or his cabinet. Lieutenant Royal asked for help and again requested that the department issue a warning. But Sergeant Wright says Royal was turned down again. Sergeant Wright was baffled. The bosses said they didn't have enough to go on. What were they not seeing? It just seemed like the most obvious common sense thing to me. I mean, you hear about law enforcement all the time warning the public when there's a serial rapist in a particular neighborhood. Mm. It comes out on the news. They put up flyers. They have uh, sometimes town hall meetings about it. Um, the bottom line is people that were driving through Malibu Canyon in our eyes, we're at risk of being shot at or camping in the campground. And it's quite simple. If we had done a public safety message telling people what was going on, people could have chosen not to drive by there or not to go camping there. Uh, and quite frankly... You basically saw it was a ticking time bomb. Someone was going to get killed absolutely. the and, public wasn't warned. Uh, Royal and I both agreed to that. This was a very bad call that the Sheriff's Department... Uh, chose to ignore our request to provide a public safety message. Because Tristan Baudet didn't know about the history of shootings in the park, he decided to go camping there. And he got killed. Can you talk about how you felt when you got that call? And I know you responded to the scene. Yes, uh, Lieutenant Royal called me in, and uh, we both felt um, sickened because we talked about this happening. We talked about uh, that we thought, we both agreed that at some point, if you shoot at enough tents or cars or campsites, chances are somebody, some person inside of a car or a tent is gonna be hit. And when he called me and told me, it was surreal because again, we wanted to warn the public to prevent this. That was shut down and now it was happening. He says that if the Sheriff's Department had listened to him and Lieutenant Royal and made a public safety announcement, Tristan Baudet would still be alive. So whatever the prosecutor or the Sheriff's Department says about Sergeant Wright and Lieutenant Royal's police work, it doesn't really matter. It seems like they're the heroes here, or at least they tried to be. We work for a great law enforcement agency and um, I'd never experienced anything like this before, where it seemed things seemed to be out of control at higher levels as far as common sense. No 
None of this stuff happened under Alex Villanueva's leadership of the sheriff's department. But it also didn't go away when he was elected. Far from it. Six weeks after Villanueva won, Erica Wu filed her $90 million claim, citing law enforcement's failure to warn about a series of shootings in the park. And the whole thing became Villanueva's problem. Then Sergeant Wright and Lieutenant Royal sued the department as whistleblowers. In his suit, Sergeant Wright says the department smeared him and Lieutenant Royal, placing them under investigation and working up false internal affairs reports. Why? To discredit them before they can take the stand for Erica Wu. And the alleged source of those reports? Ty Berry, the detective with a history of lying and a grudge against Sergeant Wright and Lieutenant Royal for solving the case. Sergeant Wright settled his suit, so he can't talk to me anymore. Lieutenant Royals may be heading to trial. But it doesn't stop there. There may be one other potential victim of all this maneuvering. The criminal case against Anthony Rauda. By making Sergeant Wright and Lieutenant Royal look bad, two figures so deeply entwined in the case the sheriff's department risks damaging the prosecution. Rada's lawyers have already seized on this. So maybe it's not Tweedledee and Tweedledum, but the sheriff's department that's given the defense a defense. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue 
earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation and the strange events in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts. Finally, I make a plan to hike to Rauda's camp with Lou Johnson. He's the guy I met with his landlady's son on the Planet of the Apes tour at Malibu Creek State Park. He sent me those pictures of Rauda's camp right before it burned, and that suspicious piece of wood I think could be part of a zip gun. He promised to show me the way. It's in a forgotten, wild patch of the park. I've seen it from the air on that helicopter ride with Sergeant Wright. But it'd be impossible to find it on foot without a guide. Lou says to meet him and Hudson at the hairpin turn, the sharp bend in Mulholland Highway. See that point right there? It's that hill right over there and around the side. The sky is overcast and moody, but the hills are lush, a super-saturated storybook spring green, and they're covered with patches of orange poppies and purple wildflowers. You've probably seen some of the orange um, uh, California poppies up there. They're popping out where we've never seen them before. I don't remember seeing We follow a dry creek bed to a deer trail, which turns sharply uphill and takes us into a small grove of oak trees. Their trunks are burned ink black, stark against the green grass, still healing from the fire that passed through here back in the fall of 2018. It was right here. This is it. The place that Rauda spent so many nights alone, in a tarp-covered dugout, on a 45-degree pitch, hidden in a crease in the hills, where he watched the fog rise off Mulholland and listened to the wail of the sheriff's patrol cars as they sped through the canyon. Yeah. Yeah, I recognize this. And this is the tree that used to be standing that was hollow. And uh, there was, like, stuff in there. And I asked Lou about the day he took those pictures he sent me. He says he was looking for clues he could turn in to the Lost Hills deputies, a real-life Hardy Boys adventure for Hudson. You know, we had thoughts that if we found anything, Hudson and I said, well, we'll take pictures of where it is, mark it, 
get a GPS, we won't touch anything, and we'll just get it to the sheriff and they can come out and get it and it'd be kind of cool to maybe help out a little bit if they miss something. I'm thinking about that carved up piece of wood with the grip and the notches and the place where a barrel made from pipe could go. The cops and their metal detectors left it behind. Lou spotted it and took a picture of it, but he doesn't seem to have recognized it for what it was. Potentially, part of a zip gun. You know, it's such a strange thing to descend on a community. Like out of a fiction story, some crazy living up in the mountains shooting at people. You know, that's just movies. It's not often real life. We sit awkwardly on the steep slope, looking at the canyon road, where the three white cars were shot. The road is easily visible from here. To my left, a couple ridges away, is Lost Hill Station. It's kind of the perfect hiding place. This is it. And if you, if you sit here for long enough, you realize two things. You can see people coming from all directions. You can hear people talking because this is shaped like a megaphone. So you will be able to hear people coming long before you can see them even. And I think that's probably why he picked this position. This, I guess, was Rauta's personal Eden or his private hell. The fire that tore through here made it an actual hell, a fiery inferno. It burned everything. Then the rains came and everything's exploded and it's green again and it's, it's more beautiful than I remember it actually. Um, it's been like this rebirth, like this phoenix, like as much as we might even want to come back and visit this site and show you where this was, nature has moved on. It's like we're not allowed to, to visit that anymore. Move on, you know? When we leave, it feels settled. Like peace has been restored to this place. I don't think I'll ever understand why the Sheriff's Department and the Parks Department didn't issue a warning after a bunch of shootings in the area. Image protection? Denial? Laziness? Rangers at Malibu Creek State Park repeatedly told victims and their families, things like this don't happen out here. When I asked California State Parks one last time for comment, they called it, quote, a terrible tragedy without precedent in the state park system. In other words, things like this don't happen out here. They directed me to the sheriff's department, who sent me two sentences. Quote, At this time, many of these assertions are unsupported and appear to have been made by a retired employee who is not part of the investigative team. This is an active criminal investigation with pending litigation, and we cannot provide further comment. So all I can do is guess. Maybe they didn't want to start a panic in Malibu. That didn't go so well. Maybe they wanted to protect the reputation of this mythically beautiful, safe place. That didn't go so well either. 
So how did Malibu turn into the killing zone? Shootings started in a state park, and park officials hushed the problem up. The shootings spread to the nearby Canyon Road, and the sheriff's department ignored the local deputies who said the public needed to be warned. Then, a man was killed. A suspect was taken into custody, but the public no longer trusted the authorities. The case was full of holes and missed opportunities. Potential evidence was overlooked, burned up. The crimes Rout is accused of have a random quality. But once they started, they were also highly predictable. Like the wildfires that ravage Malibu every several years. And the mountain lions that, once in a while, prey upon a household pet. The sheriff's department chose not to issue a warning. But they did send a clear message. To the public, the message was, Malibu is full of mysteries. The roads are dark. Cell phones never work. Sound echoes in the canyon. It's a mountain lion, not a woman screaming for her life. To their deputies, the message was, if you do your job, if you try to stop a murder, you'll get punished. Run out of the department. Smeared. To the criminals, out here, some things don't get solved. So if you want to commit a crime, you might get away with it. And to Erica Wu, we didn't owe you a warning before your husband died, and we still don't owe you anything. When I first met Erica, she told me something about her husband. He had a really um, sort of keen sense about what he could control and what he couldn't. When I would get upset about things, like when I would have a bad day at work or something and I'd be dwelling on something or some interaction I had, you know, he would always listen to me um, talk about it and he would... He'd be like, all right, Erica, you get, you know, he'd look at his watch and he'd be like, you get two more hours to be upset about this, you know? You can be as upset as you want to be, you know, for that amount of time. And then after that, we're going to figure out, you know, what you're going to do differently next time or whatever. And we're just going to move on. I asked her if she could still hear that voice in her ear. Um, yeah, for sure, because... You know, I feel like if he were here, if he could see us now, he would be like, yeah, that's, you know, unbelievably awful and tragic and horrible what happened, but you have to, you have to move on, you know? So that's what I'm trying to do. 
At the end of February 2021, I have a surprising call with Erica. Surprising because she sounds lighter, more optimistic than I've ever heard her. She tells me she is moving on to another place, a bigger unit in the same complex. The girls are excited. You know, any kind of change like that is exciting for them. So they're trying to decide right now whether or not they're going to be in the same room still or still be in a bunk bed or have separate beds, but we haven't quite figured that out yet. Her own feelings, she says, are more complicated. When I sort of was starting to think about moving and packing everything up again, it sort of brought up a lot um, from our last move, which was, you know, right after Tristan died. And that was really, you know, I remember very little of it because it was such a big fog. You know, it's bringing up a lot of that. And then also the feeling that it is a change, you know, this is the first time that I'm actually doing a move on my own and setting up you know, a new place on my own, which I haven't done without Tristan sort of ever. She's been confronting the past, all the stuff she shoved into boxes in the garage when her sisters moved her up here, right after Tristan died. Over the weekend, I finally opened these boxes from Tristan's, like, um, office, and it was all of his, like, textbooks and papers that he had written and, like, notebooks where he had jotted down notes, and I was just flipping through it and just just to read things that he had written, you know, like with his hands or thoughts that he was having that day or, you know, putting, jotting down notes about his next project. And I mean, things like that. I just, I don't know. You can't throw those away yet. Erica says that she tries hard to keep Tristan present for the girls. You know, they were so young when he died. You know, Evie was only two. She wasn't even talking. I think for a long time, just because of what happened, Clara had a really hard time with it. You know, she draws, she does a lot of art, and I noticed that in the past, like, six months or so, um, when she draws pictures of the family, he's back in the pictures again. And for a long time, he wasn't. And then just sort of one day, and I can't remember what holiday it was, she was drawing something, either it was like a birthday card for her sister, or maybe it was like around Christmas time that she was she was doing it, and suddenly he was just, yeah, just like back in the pictures. <laughs> and it's sort of, I don't know, it seemed very like, you know, I, I could have was like, oh, you drew everybody. And she was like, yeah, you know, it was just sort of a natural thing for her. Tristan's birthday was in November. There have been three already since he died. It's a day, Erica says, that she and the girls always spend together doing things Tristan loved. The week leading up to it, we'll sort of talk about the fact that his birthday is coming up and go, you know, make a list, sort of like, what would what would he want us to do, you know, since he's not here? And what are, were the things that he loved to do? It could be like, you know, drink coffee, eat broccoli, go hiking, be in nature, be kind, um, be with each other, read a book, you know, like just anything that comes to mind, I would make this, I made this huge list. And um, then on that day, we would like pick one or two of them or whatever we thought was manageable. So this last time uh, we went up to, you know, north of the city, there's a Redwood State Park that um, actually Tristan and I used to go hiking at a lot and that we loved. So I took them there and we went on a 
unintentionally, we went on like a six and a half mile hike. I got kind of lost. They got lost, but they found their way back. And then, on the way home, they stopped at the beach. She had Tristan's ashes with her. I mean, that's been another thing that I've sort of struggled with ever since he passed, was what what to do with the ashes and where to spread them, where it hadn't really, nothing has sort of felt right to me um, until that day. I actually felt, com- you know, like it just felt right to bring some of them with us um, to a place that he loved um, and would have loved to be there with them. And we took them and spread them on the beach. And now, when Tristan's daughters play on the beach, running in and out of the waves, they'll be remembering their father, and he'll still be the one chasing after them. Lost Hills is reported, written, and hosted by me, Dana Goodyear. It was edited by Ben Adair. Haley Fox produced the show and also contributed a ton of additional reporting. Dan Leone is our composer and sound designer. Alex McGinnis is our mix engineer. Additional producers are Cameron Kell, Lori Gallaretta, Annette Renhell, and Sabrina Fang. Micah Hauser is our fact checker. Anthony Rauda's writings were performed by Nick Borain. Our cover art was made by Francesca Gabbiani. Executive producers are Ben Adair for Western Sound and Jacob Weisberg and Lital Malad for Pushkin Industries. Thanks also to the Pushkin team. Mia Lobel, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Eric Sandler, Maggie Taylor, and Daniela Lacan. Special thanks to Julia Barton and Kate Parkinson Morgan. Lost Hills is a production of Western Sound and Pushkin Industries. Follow at Lost Hills Pod on social media to find out about bonus episodes and stay up to date as Anthony Rauda heads to trial. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Season two of Lost Hills is coming soon. Nine one one. What is your emergency? I'm just um, shots. A shot fired in. Um, How many shots did you hear? Just one huge loud one. I just and it was not a backfire because I hear those from the highway. It was so it seemed to be in between. Did, are you familiar with what a gun sounds like? Oh yeah. On what street? It's not in the street. It's in the canyon in the uh, wilderness. Okay. Did it sound like a pistol, shotgun? Shotgun. Since Anthony Rauda's arrest, I haven't heard any new reports of pre-dawn sniper-style shootings in the area. But there are still shots in the night. And very likely, this will be a plank of his defense when his trial finally begins. You know, it's like there's a lot of mystery still in there. That's Kara Hartley again. 
the hiker who found a box of shotgun shells at Rauda's camp. And there's been a lot of unexplained oddities that have happened up here in the hills in several murders and several bodies found that are really, that are unsolved, people that are still missing that haven't been found in, in very odd accounts of their disappearances. And so, I mean, this just kind of is one of them and one of many. To her, the six near misses and the Baudet murder don't feel like an aberration. They represent the real Malibu, the Malibu no one talks about. Anthony Rauda may be in custody, but Malibu is still the killing zone. And what happened out there, in that no-man's land, could easily happen again. I'm Dana Goodyear, and this is Lost Hills. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation and the strange events in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts.